Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 77. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 4 through 7 in 1 Kings and follow with a consideration of cultural crossover, blending, and uniqueness. Last episode's raucous display of Solomonic wisdom is followed up this episode with a healthy dollop of Solomonic prudence as chapter 4 takes us through the appointments of Shlomo's cabinet and the reorganization of the kingdom into new districts which redraw the map from traditional tribal allotments. Chapter 5 provides us with leaked emails from Shlomo's Office of Budgeting and Appropriations outlining his and his retinue's daily consumption of flour, meal, and meat, as well as the barley for his extensive stable of horses. We are reminded again of how wise Shlomo is, even more than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman. And the masters of the universe! And Kalkol and Darda and how he penned 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 poems and spoke of trees, the cedars of Lebanon, the hyssop, as well as... The green alligators and long-necked geese Some humpty-backed camels and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and elephants But sure as you're born The lovely... Yeah, I know this song's about Noah's Ark, okay? But it fits here, too. In short, quote, And from all the peoples they came to listen to Shlomo's wisdom, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. We also read of Shlomo's alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, and of the contracting for the construction of the temple to be made from the finest cedar and cypress Lebanon has to offer. Chapter 6 recounts the beginning of temple construction in the month of Ziv, the second month, 480 years after the Exodus, its dimensions and fine design details. Funding for this old house is provided by Parks Corporation, makers of Carver Trip wood stains, clear finishes and enamels, products that enrich, protect and preserve the natural beauty of wood. And by State God, who tells Shlomo, quote, this house that you build, if you walk by my statutes and do my laws and keep all my commands to walk by them, I shall fulfill my word with you that I spoke to David your father, and I shall dwell in the midst of the Israelites, and I shall not forsake my people Israel. The project took seven and a half years, and it was completed under budget. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me, and I'll build them very inexpensively. But here's a fun fact. Shlomo's palace took 13 years to build, and it was much bigger than the temple. It included a cedar-pillared house, the forest of Lebanon, perhaps an audience hall, a treasury or strong room, a judgment hall where Shlomo's magnificent ivory throne stood, and a special palace for the daughter of Pharaoh, Shlomo's most high-born wife, and living quarters for Shlomo's multitude of wives and children. Chapter 7 concludes with an inventory of temple implements. Quote, and the task that King Shlomo had done was finished in the house of the Lord, and Shlomo brought the dedicated things of David his father, the silver and the gold, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of the house of the Lord. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. So 
So one of the big questions I'm often asked when I teach about Shlomo's temple or the temple built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah or the renovation undertaken by Herod in the first century BCE, it relates to the Jewishness of those buildings, not in the sense of what went on inside, but what went on outside. As in, is there such a thing as Jewish architecture? The temple is the Jewiest of all buildings. Was it built in high Jewy style? I took on a similar question in my doctoral heyday when I considered if there was such a thing as Jewish cooking. I mean, there's the adherence to kashrut regulations. That's pretty Jewish. Chicken parm is chicky chicky parm parm. Chicken cacciatore, chicky catch. I call eggs pre-birds or future birds. But if you look at the quintessential Jewish dishes, aren't they just variations of local fare? Isn't the bagel originally a Polish bread product? True, it was a wildly popular item in Eastern European Jewish communities from the 17th century on, and Jews imported it with them to North America during the massive exodus in the late 19th century. But is it Jewish? I guess. Especially if you eat it with lox and a schmear. And Sephardi Jewish cuisine, with its particular flavor combinations and favored ingredients, salads, stuffed vegetables, and vine leaves, olive oil, lentils, fresh and dried fruits, herbs and nuts, chickpeas, meat dishes with lamb and ground beef, use of cumin, cilantro, turmeric, caraway, and capers, which were brought to Spain by the Muslims. Once again, is it Jewish or Iberian, or is it Jewish remix of Iberian? And let's not even bring up the highly contentious and politically charged Israeli kitchen, because folks will get up all in the comments section as soon as you propose anything as being Israeli. But I can propose one dish that I don't think any other ethnicity or nationality can lay claim to, or would want to lay claim to. That's right, Bamba. Wow! I suppose Bamba hasn't penetrated the North American snack market as thoroughly because Bamba is basically a chemically engineered puffed peanut snack. And well, North America is pretty nut averse these days. But say what you will, it's uniquely Israeli and something that Israelis could point to with pride and claim as their own in the ever competitive global snack food market. Anywho, I guess my previous observation could be made about any cuisine. It's a style of cooking that reflects local conditions which have been worked and reworked by the locals. In a sense, the same could be said of Jewish architecture. As the quintessential minority living in majority culture not their own, Jews have always borrowed liberally and thoughtfully from their neighbors. And the first and best example is Shlomo's temple. Even when we had an independent monarchy, we picked and chose. We see this in this episode's portion when Shlomo brings the finest Sidonian designers and workers to build him a temple like other temples in the ancient Near East, like the one at Tel Tainat. Tel Tainat is located in southeastern Turkey. Incidentally, a tell is a mound, but a man-made one. On the site buried deep in the earth is the original city, which was built centuries ago on a natural hill and located in a strategic location. In the case of Tel Tainat, the original city was constructed on the east bank at the bend of the ancient Orontes River. Already defendable because of where it was situated on the bank, the builders raised the slopes of the hill by accumulating earth on top of the hill and building high walls with field stones or sun-dried mud bricks. With the coming of war and inevitable defeat, 
you can't win them all, the city was leveled by fire or deliberate destruction, thus creating the first level. After the destruction, a new city was built on top of this layer. This cycle would repeat over the decades, and the layers would build up. Why ancient folks did this instead of just picking another site had more to do with convenience than aesthetics. Under the ruins of the city, all the building blocks were available. The heavy blocks were on site. You wouldn't have to schlep them to a new place. Water and waterworks were also available. They just required some repair. The walls were built to last and could be incorporated into the defenses of the next layer. Also, one of the best defense measures was to raise the height of the city as much as possible, which required a vast amount of soil. Earlier layers added to the height and were therefore useful in the next layer. And don't forget the real estate agent's dictum, location, location, location. Folks built the city there to begin with because of it. Some tells accumulated 20 to 30 layers over the dozens of centuries of history. Archaeologists can come along and slice them, examining the remains along the cut wall, examining stones, ceramics, bones, and coins. It's a real tableau of history. So when archaeologists began their work in the late 1930s in the low-lying ancient tell about 25 kilometers southeast of ancient Antioch, it was not all that surprising to uncover a temple whose floor plan closely followed that of Shlomo's. Because as I mentioned before, the design of Shlomo's temple was a pretty popular one. It was the typical temple design of the day. Several temples in Palestine, such as the late Fossi Temple in Lachish, the temple at Beit She'an in Stratum 4, and especially the temple at Chatzor in Stratum 1b in Area H, followed the tripartite structure and proportions. Entering the temple, you'd find yourself in the first hall, the ulam, or porch, a small vestibule, 20 cubits, which is about mm, 9 meters or 30 feet long, corresponding to the width of the temple, and 10 cubits, or about 4.5 meters or 15 feet deep. Flanking the porch were two pillars, in this case named Yachin and Boaz, which were 18 cubits or approximately 8 meters or 27 feet in height. Next, the Heichal, or holy place, also called the greater house. It was the same 20 cubits in width and height, but 40 cubits or 18 meters or 60 feet in length. And then the innermost sancta, the Kodesh HaKedoshim, also called the inner house, was a 20 by 20 by 20 cubit cube. I posted a number of artist renditions at thenextjew.com for those who need a little bit more than word pictures. Though there is no archaeological evidence for the existence of Shlomo's temple and the building is not mentioned in surviving extra-biblical accounts, there is broad scholarly consensus that Shlomo's temple existed. And there is tangential evidence. The house of Yahweh Astrakhan or Pottery Shard discovered at Tel Arad and dated to the 6th century BCE. It mentions a temple which scholars believe is probably the temple of Shlomo in Jerusalem. There was also a thumb-sized ivory pomegranate bearing an ancient Hebrew inscription, quote, sacred donation for the priests of the house of Yahweh, which was believed to have crowned a scepter used by the high priest in Shlomo's temple. Except that in 2004, the Israel Antiquities Authority declared the inscription a forgery. And then there's the Yehoash inscription, uncovered in 2003, containing a 15-line description of King Yehoash's 9th century BCE restoration of the temple, except the authenticity of this inscription was also challenged by the Israel Antiquities Authority. Either foragers really want to substantiate Shlomo's temple while raking in cash from credulous collectors, or the Israel Antiquities Authority is just that good. In any event, 
Shlomo's temple was majestic and magisterial, but by no means unique, and by First King's account, not the crowning glory of Mount Moriah. Uh, but, and here's where I loop back to the original observation about ethnic cuisine, it's the remixing and reworking that make any ethnicity's cuisine distinct from any other ethnicity's cuisine, my ethnicity versus your ethnicity, even though we share similar ingredients. But I think it speaks to a more basic question. If we all live together, if we are influenced by majority culture and by each other, then what can I say is uniquely mine? And, and does that really matter? And there are a truckload of assumptions about who I am vis-a-vis -vis the majority and minority and how I identify and am identified in that culture. And in many respects, I think that in the North American Jewish community, there is at the same time a sense that we are a minority but for many Jewish folks, there is a strong identification with the majority and the majority establishment. In other words, many Jewish folks don't see themselves as Jews, but as white. This is not to say that they deny their Jewishness. They don't at all. They are very proud Jews. They light the right amount of candles at Hanukkah. They have a proper Seder. They give to the UJA and JNF and vote Israel come election time. It's just that they see themselves as consummate insiders aligned with the interests and agendas of the majority, as opposed to acknowledging the space traditionally inhabited by minorities in society, by their parents and their grandparents, which is on the outside. And perhaps I'm being reductive, nostalgic, or just wrong, being inside could be a good thing, a sign that we've made it. We're living the dream, but I think it also comes with a price. So is there any value in me as a minority? Because yes, even though I am perceived by the mainstream as a tall, white, hetero, Ashkenazi man, I acknowledge that perception. I am also aware of it and it, its impact on my life. But I also see myself as a minority, as a Jew in the Christianish West. As a North American when I am in Israel, as a progressive among the well-meaning but right-leaning centrists and hard conservatives within my own Jewish community, is there a value in me being able to say, this is mine, this is my culture? Absolutely. If nothing else, it's something I can be proud of, especially when in many cases the majority culture might devalue or denigrate my culture, or oddly, appropriate it as their own. That is not my experience. North American culture loves Jews. But I'm sure if I was, say, a Mizrahi Jew in Israel or an African American in the United States, I might not feel the same way. There was a saying in Israel about immigration, Israelis love Aliyah, the Olim, not so much. So it's especially important as a minority to be aware of boundaries to preserve one's heritage, traditions, and language in the face of the benign onslaught of majority culture, not in a militant jingoistic way, but in a mindful, meaningful way. So light Hanukkah candles, sing the blessings, Mao's sword, me and Malel in rounds. But perhaps your Hanukkiah might come from the Etsy shop with candle cups along the back of a brass Triceratops or Tyrannosaurus Rex. Or you might deploy your Seder plate, which might be made from a recycled oak wine barrel and wrought iron legs. Yes, it can be yours for only $243. We're not all the same and shouldn't be blending into one big sameness. That's my beef, by the way, with Star Trek, which posits that this is what happens to humans in the 23rd century. We kind of schmear into this one earth vanilla monoculture. And thinking about the ethnic thing, the ethnic label, 
It also irks me a little bit. For decades, ethnic denoted difference and inferiority. It used to mean Italian or Greek, then Chinese, then Mexican, then Indian, and now it's Japanese. Except today, you know, foodies are looking for the authentic ethnic. I wish them well in that pursuit. So when Shlomo brings in the best Sidonian designers to work on the temple and it hews pretty closely to the best sacred design principles of the day, there are still some meaningful Jewish variations, specifically what this temple was for and how it was used. Or to harken back to what I said at the beginning, what went on inside as opposed to what went on outside. According to Jewish belief, God did not dwell in his temple. And there was only one temple for God in all of the land of Israel. Its singular status also secured its status as a national center. And since it was, moreover, the abode of the ark, it was constructed and considered to be the site of the revelation of the divine presence, and hence also the preferred place for prayer. So, even though pretty much all of Israeli cuisine, I'm cycling back, might be claimed by other ethnicities or nationalities, there are still some things and the way in which those things are used that are uniquely Israeli. And the same could be said for Jewish cuisine, and as I have been alluding to throughout this episode, the same could be said for our sacred temple and the sequel, which Herod renovates in high Roman style. So in the end, it's really not about the spoon, but how you stir with it. And I could traffic in more cliches like those, but I think I'll just cut it here. You get the point. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 78, when we continue the first book of Kings with chapters 8 through 11.